Jeff Ogilvy survives Wingfoot. Now the moment Aaron Badley has waited. Curry Webb is the five-time Australian Open champion. Golf at its best by one of the best in golf, Peter Thompson. Stand in front of a crowd like this today and win the PGA Championship is pretty special. He's done it at last. Greg Norman. his name on the Stonehaven Cup. Leishman to 11 under. Now we've got a new leader, kids. Here is Adam Scott. A life changer. Coming up next, you have unrestricted access to golf across Australia and the world. Thanks to Golf Australia, we're going inside the ropes. Subscribe now on iTunes or your favourite podcast app or head to golf.org.au. G'day everybody, welcome to Inside the Ropes episode number 105. That's impressive. Uh, lovely to be here. That's the cackling Mark Hayes you can hear in the background. Hello, Hazy. Hello, Murray. Well, you keep me entertained. That's fair enough, uh, oh, isn't it? I love that. That's great. Um, Brad Hughes is going to join us. Very much looking forward to speaking to him. Um, I'm sure he's um, he's lived a full life in the game. We're also going to catch up with um, one of our... Outback Queensland Warriors, is that right? Yeah, a key player in the uh, Outback Queensland Masters, Darren Weatherall, is going to join us in our third segment. Uh, He's got a a lot to do with what's going on in the beautiful Outback of Queensland. It's always a joyous event when we're joined on Inside the Ropes by Mike Clayton. How are you, Clates? I'm good. Andy, how's your? We shouldn't mention your football team. No, no, should we, let's really? not do that. Stay no, away no, from that. No, we want to be talking footy right now. Nor yours. Thing nor yours. So none do. of us want to talk footy right no, now. That's no, sure. no, no footy at mine. Yeah. Uh, before we get rolling, Andy, I should have mentioned this, before, you know, perhaps off air a bit, but I, I wanted to bring, um, put something on the table front and center. Uh, we've talked about it briefly before, but um, hashtag doing it for Jared. Oh yes, of uh, course. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Implore everyone to get involved. You, you can get involved at your club. Just ask that your club donates at least one of its competition days during the month of August. I'm going to be celebrating the the release of the, the book, his autobiography, but more importantly, the year of his uh, one year since he passed away, the big fella. Mm. Um, but it's the, it's the start of something big. Jared's gift uh, is what it's all about, giving money back to projects that uh, were dear to his heart. And we're doing it through hashtag doing it for Jared. And I'm, implore everyone who's listening to go down to your club, get it involved, play one of your comp days for money that you can donate to Challenge and all the causes that Jared had dear to his heart. A lot more coming up on it in the weeks to come. But, uh, yeah, there'll be some pretty big announcements about mm. that. It's going to be awesome, and it's a legitimate chance for everyone to get in some, involved in something at the grassroots level of something that's going to be really important for Australian and, golf. And often when you – like everybody was, you know, kind of moved to various degrees, you know, when, when Jared's life – ended and it's often difficult sometimes to know you want to do something but you don't quite know how to do it well this is you don't have to do anything really you just go and play your golf yeah as you do any other saturday or wednesday or whatever day you choose and um but you just get the club to jump on board and it's it's a brilliant brilliant idea and it's a great way to for everybody who feels like they want to make a contribution to make a contribution it is and all this is Finally, all the aspects of Australian golf pulling in the one direction for something that's actually really meaningful. So get involved, hashtag doing it for Jared. Ring up Challenge Cancer, get the details. I'll bring you more or we'll all bring you more as the weeks unfold closer to August. We're going to speak to Brad Hughes a bit later on, Clates. At his best, how many more naturally gifted players were there um, in that era than him? Was, was he one of those or was he 
how would you have categorised him? In Australia? Hmm. Yeah, he was good. Yeah. yeah. Was he natural? I, mean, I, think, I don't think anyone's naturally good. They're incredible. They're, at some point, they've all gone to the ranges, of 8, course. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, and hit hundreds of thousands of golf balls and figured out how to play golf. So he was – he figured it out better than most. But he played – in front of me in the Vic Open in 1982 when he was 15 or something, which was kind of pretty amazing to qualify for the yeah, Vic yeah, Open yeah, as a 15 yeah, year old. Yeah, it always looked like he had a really kind of. When I shut my eyes and try and remember Brad Hughes, I always remember kind of a really loose, natural flowing swing. I guess that's when I said natural. I guess that's what I was getting at. Was that it? Was that a fair um, probably had memory a, of Hughes' swing? Yeah, it was big wide backswing mm, like yeah, Norman and massive takeaway. You could yeah. tell he copied. Norman, who'd copied Nicholas, big wide takeaway, and which no one would ever teach now. No one, you don't see anyone playing like that now, really. But it was a very much a product of a generation who copied Greg Norman, who had himself, as I said, grown up copying Jack Nicholas. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we all suffered from, you know, it wasn't a model you would copy, but he was, he'd done a pretty good job of um, replicating what Greg did. My memory of him is someone who played quickly and who engaged and was. Not one of the bigger names, but when he started to get the fuel for winning tournaments was just, mm. you know, had that sort of ability to shut them down. And I, I, I'll ask him that later. Mm. I reckon he was pretty daunting to a mm. lot of players when he was at the best height of his game, which was, you know, through the mid nineties. Were you daunted by him? <laughs> is he? No, but, um. Who were you intimidated by? Well, Who intimidated I, yeah, you? Yeah, Greg. Greg, Greg. Was, yeah, yeah. Greg was the only guy that you really thought, I'm not sure how I beat uh, this guy, uh, you know, cause he beat you most weeks, but. Yeah, I mean, everyone thought everyone, every other guy in the field thought they could beat every other guy in the field. But when Greg was at his best, he was hard to beat. We've we've taken a go on. Well, I can't. I I'm I watched Clates in that era without have, clearly having known him. But I can't imagine you being intimidated by anyone. To be honest with you. No, yeah, you always look at guys who can do things you can't do, and yeah, but yeah. I look at you and think oh, I can't swing a golf club like you. Yeah, well, no, but I'm not intimidated by you. Uh, maybe, but yeah, Greg was, you know, Greg was Greg. He was, you know, like Peter Thompson said of who you would think wasn't intimidated by many people when he probably wasn't, but he said of Nicholas that I recognized he was an incredibly difficult player to beat. It was true. Yeah. You, you look at Jack or Greg or guys that and you go, or Seve or Tiger now, you know, Kepka, how do you beat him? He's got more mm. skills than I have. It's like tennis players. I mean, the, Paul McNamee told me once that the, one, the players with the biggest guns always win. And I suspect that's probably true. Mm. So you can look at, if you're on clay this week, looking at Rafael Nadal, you're going, I'm not going to beat this guy because how many, <laughs> friend, how many game matches has he lost in Paris? In not many. One, no, maybe, no, 12 years. Many. So yeah. you're lying if you're saying you're not intimidated by Rafael Nadal <laughs> and clay in Paris. <laughs> but I'm interested to hear you say they've got more skills than me. I just, Yeah, of course they did. Greg at the no, ball, like, higher, I, further, better. Did he? Yeah, of course he did. I reckon it's infinitesimally small difference, and it, it uh, maybe it's a mental hole. But you flushed nah. the ball, Clayton. You did yeah. then. You do now. Yeah, but he had a better swing than me. The ball. Was, was there? He was a better player than me. Mate. Was there a line that he took off a tee once that you can remember when you're playing with him or watching him, and you thought, "What's he pointing over there for? Why is he heading no. in that direction?" There was nothing no. like that. Yeah. No, but he, I remember just shots he would hit. That no, yeah. that, I remember played. I played. I was playing a practice round with him in America once. We were just, it was just a week off. I was playing the grades and Nick Price and Norman. 
before the 87 month, before the Larry Mize Masters, and there was a par five at Grand Cypress with a green way up in the air. And for the three of us, it was just drive up, lay up, wedge. And he hit this one iron, like it was this tiny green way. It was a, almost a caricature of a hole. And he hit this thing to about eight feet with this, like, just beyond ridiculous <sighs> how good that shot was. And Nick, I mean, Nick Price could really hit it. Mm. It was like, you know, that was pretty good. Because, yeah. you know, there weren't many guys in the world who could hit that shot. One irons. Yeah. One eye. Yeah. That was one of the most stupid pieces of sporting equipment ever no. made by oh. a designer. No, anyway. no, you had to. One yeah, eye. No, oh, oh, even a chopper like that. No, you, had, you couldn't play in. When, when you were playing Thank with. Thank God a, for technology, is when, what I say about one eye. When, when we were playing with bladder balls in Britain and Australia when it was windy, and, yeah, and the, of whole, course, yeah. the whole struggle was to get the thing down. I mean, now it's all about getting it up. Mm, then it was about mm, getting it down. Mm. And you know, a hard, fast running fairway in the wind, a one iron was a, you couldn't do without it. No, no, different. I used to love my one iron. Did you never yeah. have No, no. Ping no. one iron. Ping one iron was one of the greatest clubs ever made. So, why? So, is it just the changing nature? They hit it so far now that no, off the tee, that no one needs a one iron. Yeah, and, and, the, and, well, the, and the ball goes so much if better yeah, and course, easier yeah. through yeah. the wind. But yeah. with that old ball, it used to spin a lot and get lost in the wind if you mishit it or you, you, know, you had to get it down on the ground and make it run. So, I mean, the standard set was one was driver, three wood, one iron, two iron, three iron. Mm, mm. And you would take out, if you wanted a 60 degree, 60 degree sandwich, you took out one of the one, two or three irons. You often took out the two irons. So mm. you had a one iron and a three iron. Mm. Whereas now, I mean, does anyone have a three iron anymore? Some people I mean, got, some guys some do, but not many. Four wedges. Well, five wedges. Getting a lot of correspondence this week, uh, you two. I'm not sure you're aware, but a lot of people after, speaking of Jack, um, the tournament at his place, as they like to say over in America, a lot of correspondents flooding into the offices of Inside the Ropes asking to be added to the Roger Bannister file because for the last two weeks we have had back-to-back Bannisters winning on the PGA Tour. Kevin Nara and now Patrick Cantlay, who uh, has been added to um, was added to the Bannisters about two years ago. Uh, he was an, one of the originals. He was one of the In fact, he may have been the original. He may have been the reason for the Bannisters. That day he had about 14 no. waggles. JB Holmes. JB Holmes is the first. the original. Um, we have to start taking notice of this kid, I reckon. He's, he, he's pretty serious. He's much more pal- palatable to watch when he only has 64 hits. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he's, been, he's been good for a pretty good player. Yeah, he's really good. He played some serious shots. The other day, he he was ultra impressive, and yeah. in his sixty four, missed two or three, um, you know, long eagle tries that sat on the edge. Not that you expect to make them, but you know, a handful of other putts looked like they were going in. Sixty four was the worst he could have had, I reckon. Oh, when he had to hit middle of the green, or hit it right of the pin, or whatever, whatever. If 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 there wasn't a like green light pin for him to go at, and he just had to play the right shot rather than the most aggressive shot. He even hit those shots mm-hmm. he, he perfectly. Like his control of his emotions and his ball in that last round was just faultless. Yeah. It's disappointing. Yeah, it was. It was like we were <laughs> barracking so hard for Adam Scott, who was playing out of his absolute skin, and he couldn't lay a glove on this bloke. He got the inside the ropes kick along, Scotty. Yeah, well, that's right. Well done. Well done to you and Stace. No, no, it was just uh, – it was really encouraging to see Adam Scott – Take if you take Cantley out out because he you just got to take your hat off to a bloke of who plays you know. that yeah. good on us yeah. uh, that well throughout a Sunday in particular. But take the rest of take him out. Adam Scott's beaten a, a quality field that's tuning up for the U.S. Open. So 
I was super impressed with what he put on the table the well, other that, day. His score wins the last eight. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Wins the last eight memorials. And Clates, he'll have to make do. I mean, he picks up 980000 as a result. He'll just have to make do with that, Scotty. Bad luck. Yeah, yeah. bad luck. Terrible thing. <laughs> Lucky. I think he said something too, Andy, about you know giving our winnings to Inside the Ropes crew. Um, well, just, even I mean, those just, who just off, the air, just off the air last week. <laughs> okay, there you go. quite made it. That's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? I, I just, it is crazy. Um Crazy, I, but you know, in all seriousness, Adam Scott, uh, we were a little fearful, maybe eight or nine months ago, where he was heading. It feels like he's. I, I mean, he talked about this last week with you guys, mm. and he does sound reinvigorated. But he looks at he he looks to be enjoying. He not doesn't he worried about not making a shot anymore, and I don't know whether he has got that lightness of being as a result of caring no not caring less but not being as worried mm. he's i mean he's in a he's in a very very rich vein of form at the moment and you know we go to pebble beach i don't know what his career's like there i don't know whether this is a course that necessarily i would think that there's not a golf course in the world that wouldn't suit adam scott the way he hits the clates i mean he just hits fairways and greens yeah well he's good yeah obviously um yeah putting stats i mean i look like he was the the eighth or ninth or twelfth best putter on tour from four feet, and the two hundred ninth best putter from five feet. So how does that work? That's ridiculous. what a stupid stat. So he's really good, really close, and then put an extra the fifth foot on there cripples him. I'd like to know what he is from three feet because I reckon <laughs> well, he misses no, more. I no, reckon he misses no, more no, three foot. He'd be like everyone else. He'd be ninety nine percent from three feet. We said that last week on a couple of weeks ago. He was number one on tour from 15 to 20 mm, feet, mm. number 207 from four to eight feet. So yeah. Patrick Cantlay, this is an interesting stat, 19 under par without holding a shot longer than 20 feet. He held two shots from outside 15 feet for the week. Gee whiz. So, so he, he should have won by – he should well, have won no. six more. No, he might have made everything. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. You know, Mark Brody will tell the strokes to hold goal will tell you it's really important to putt well from inside ten feet. And if you make those then but that's a pretty amazing statistic. You hold two shots from between fifteen and twenty feet and nothing longer. Mm. And you think you see you think when someone's gonna shoot nineteen and a par, they're gonna chip it in a couple of times during the week or make a couple of forty foot bombs or mm. nothing. That's what I'm saying on Sunday. Like the sixty four was legitimately the worst he mm. could have made, I reckon. It was very impressive. Also good Andy to see there was the, there was really encouraging week in Ohio unless your name is Jason Day. Yep. Um but Mark Leishman, I was fearful of his back, sort of ruining a couple of major championships here, but that was really impressive. Four nice rounds there. He's fourth top fifteen finish in his past five starts at that event. So he obviously loves it there at Jack's place. Um, but also uh, Matt Jones and uh, Aaron Baddeley. Yeah, good on him. Who I'm actually giving them both their cards now. They've done enough. Done to, enough. Yeah. With, with on limited status, having lost it last year, uh, their full status, that is. Um, they've done really well. So FedEx Cup standings, Matt Jones, 96, Aaron Baddeley, 74th. And I'm saying that's enough to get them another go around next season. Yeah, that'll be, yeah it's, that's a great result. Hey, they Aaron Battle is an interesting story, Clates. I mean, variously, he could have just kind of disappeared from the game at this level, but he just survives. He's yeah. a, um, a, I think most golf fans in Australia would say that this is an unfulfilled career given what he did mm. as a teenager here in Australia and the potential that he showed. How would you, you know, now that he's well and truly into his adulthood and he's a 
father of about 19 children mm. and um he must be. How old's Aaron Baddeley now? Forty. It was nineteen. In, it was eighteen in two, 1999. Um, Twenty years ago, thirty-eight. So he was um, forty. Okay. Yep. I went to a dinner last night where Dale Lynch spoke. Who was his coach? And he sort of addressed the issue of the unfulfilled talent. And he wasn't when he won the Open at Kingston Heath in two thousand. He wasn't the player he was the year before. When he was eighteen, he was. Incre- I mean, I. Someone had said, how many majors is this kid going to win? It was, you know, it was more than one and likely be one of the best five players in the world. And he hit the ball incredibly well. The performance at Royal Sydney was amazing, the way he could move the ball around and the shots he could hit and beating Norman and Montgomery under the pressure and all that. As a kid, you know, it was crazy. Mm. But um, if you look at the statistics, if you measure the quality of someone's ball striking by the greens they hit in regulation – He's been the worst ball striker on the US Tour his whole career. Mm. It's incredible. I mean, he's in the last, not every year, but pretty much, been in the bottom five in greens in regulation his whole career. And he's been matching that. He's been the, pretty much the best putter over the journey. If you put his you know, the, the consistency of how well he putts together, he's been the best putter. But at 18, if you'd said this guy's going to be statistically the worst player on the US Tour for 20 years, you would have laughed he was that good. But he went. He left Lynch. He went to David Ledbetter. Mm. Changed the club face. He went to Stack and Tilt. It was such. I mean, Lynch's view, I think, would be that it was only that he was so talented that he survived all of that and still could play at all. Mm. But you know, he's he, he's had a what do you what do you make tied for twenty second eighty seven thousand US dollars I assume so more than a hundred thousand for the week. So you know, he's doing fine. But you know, he was a at eighteen. He was going to be a Gun, and uh, yeah, there are lessons for Ryan Ruffles there too. I think. How sure. so? How so? While it, Tommy Watson caddied for him at the Vic Open when he was sixteen, I think, and finished third, and thought he was the best player, you know, one of the best players at that age. Well, not not even at that age. He said, Kid can hit every shot. Mm. And Aaron was the same. So you know, it would be not that Aaron's had a bad career by any means. He's got plenty of money. But I think we all thought he would be a, uh, would have won more golf tournaments than he has to this point. After we, when he walked off that seventy second green at Royal Sydney in nineteen ninety nine, you know he was he was going to be a Tiger Woods challenger. So to go, you two have a crack at this. What's driving Aaron Baddeley now? What, what do you reckon? If you can imagine what it is that's driving the Baddeley machine, what do you what do you reckon? He's got he's got enough money now to never need another dollar, right? Like he doesn't. He does. He's, I imagine his bank balance is pretty yeah. healthy. I would think. I would think he, at thirty-eight, he still thinks he's got good years ahead of him, and, he, and he's an unfulfilled t- career in terms of. So he's still chasing. I would have thought. I mean, why else would you play? You know, I, I agree, and I, I, I actually think he's playing chase up after stack and tilt. I think he's rebuilt his swing to the point where he thinks he's competitive. This guy's lost his card a couple of times, mm. but he's now, he's won four times on tour. Mm. I mean, that's enough to keep the walls from the door for anyone for the rest of their life. But um, he's clearly got bigger goals in mind than just plodding along, making FedEx Cup cutoffs, you know. Mm, mm. So, and you can play if you're in his, – his body's in – he's not like he's overweight or he's unfair. No, he's he's out of shape. So there's no reason why you can't play competitively on that tour until you're early to mid-40s, even later. I mean, you know, who knows? But, you know, he's 38. He's not certainly not done playing. 
He's got 203 kids, Andy, so maybe he's, he's trying to get out of the Well, house. maybe he doesn't need to keep playing just to make some dollars, <laughs> if that's the case. Um, I just, before we move on from the memorial, did you realise Adam Scott, well, you probably know Adam Scott's won 13 times on tour. Do you realise he's now finished runner-up 13 times on tour? Is that right? It's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's pretty good. That's I mean, going to pay. That'll pay a few bills. It, it pays a lot of bills, but, uh, you know, by the same token, if you win, not many people win 13 times on tour. But if you win, how many 20, times has he won on tour, on the professional tour, not just the US PGA tour? But oh, according, oh god, yeah, plenty. How many? He won ten. To, well, Europe. The, well, um, I don't go. I don't like going via Wikipedia, but it says he's won twenty nine separate professional yeah, tournaments. Yeah, because Europe it says ten European wins, but Europe count. Europe probably count the US Masters as a European tour event, so it's kind of slightly misleading. But. That's true, but I don't think the twenty nine does. So twenty nine was separate twenty nine professional yeah. wins. But yeah. he won every year on on a tour on some tour every year from two thousand to two thousand and fourteen, maybe some yeah. somewhere on planet Earth. He won every year, so it's a remarkable career. Like we sit here and well, I have sat here and said, you know, I'd love him to fulfil his talent by winning another major, but by any other measure, he's he's going okay. Or he's going he? okay. So he's. 29 wins, he's halfway to Graham Marsh. There you go. Yeah. How is your homework coming along? you got to get Marshy. Yeah, we need to get Marshy. Marshy's good. <laughs> he was the most iconic, from outside of maybe Morris, no, no, Mike Calandro, who was completely kind of, for a different reason, completely. This is me re- diving right back into my youth. Yeah. Graham Marsh was the most beautifully dressed player. Yeah, Marshy week was. Week. He yeah. had such a, he had the, the sleeveless, the sleeveless pullover, yeah. The visor, yeah. Uh, like the, the generally a kind of grey slack. He he was um, he was immaculately well, he the was, perfect collar in those days. Well, like he, he played in Japan where God, he was well dressed. I'm, I'm sure he had boxes and boxes and boxes of unopened <laughs> trousers, shirts, jumpers, cashmere, no doubt. <laughs> You know, he did that well, though, un- didn't he? Yeah, he was a great dresser, Mark. He was a he good was dresser. Good. Oh, is he? A bit like your fine self, of course. Yeah, yeah we're course. very yeah. similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it Kyle Wollstenholme? Was he of the- Tally-ho? What about him? Did he have the crazy Argyle socks? No, Roger Dave. No, that was Roger Dave. No, didn't Wollstenholme have no. them too? Mike oh. Calandro had the B, well, the plus, had plus the- twos, plus fours, yeah. didn't he? Stuart Ginn. Now, oh, yeah. Ginny was always the best dress guy. Yeah, magnificent. He was the most ridiculous-looking <laughs> player in the 70s. <laughs> the hair. Yeah, when you look back at photos of the 70s, he's the only one that looks any good. Everyone else looks completely <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> body shirt. Remember the body shirt body, oh. with the button-up body oh, shirt with shocking, the big collars? Terrible look. Just shocking horrific. look. And really Guinea, Guinea was the most outrageous. And you go back and look, he looks fantastic. Because <laughs> he, he always pulled it off. He looked amazing, whatever he wore. He looked incredible. Not, Morris Benbridge wasn't outrageous way he used no, to. He was no, he was as, very boring, wasn't he? He was as yeah. boring as any yeah, pop could be. Yeah, it's, he was, true. Yeah. it's very true. Yeah. Give me the grey pants and the light blue shirt and the grey jumper. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. uh, it wasn't the biggest tournament on planet Earth this week, of course. Far from it. Um, um, what did you think of the golf course, Clates? We, Hazy was telling us about the owner and it's difficult to get a look at these golf courses and we don't they don't open themselves up very often. What, the women's US Open? Yeah, of course. About? Yeah. yeah, it looked great. Yeah, it looked amazing. It did look good, didn't it? We were talking about last week the, yeah. the Seth Rayner yeah, courses. Rainer. That you'd... So the template holes and all that stuff, yeah. so really nice. Looked really good. Mm. I think it's a terrific course, yeah. It was a good tournament. I thought, I, you know, I was unsure, obviously, and we, we spoke about it based on my limited research, but I thought it was fantastic. Mm. Oh, it was very playable, mm. but by the same token, it didn't give up a lot of great scores either. So there were some, it was ripping sections of, uh, of the course, um, you know, 
16, 17, 18 was a little bit sort of highway, but the 16, 17 was really strong. And around the turn, the 10, 11, 12 combination was awesome. I, don't uh, want... I just thought it was a brilliant course to watch as opposed to the Beth Page yeah. fiasco a couple of weeks ago. I'm not saying this to have fun because there's not really a lot of fun to have with it, but it's a lead into it um, on a couple of fronts. But good to see that Hank Haney tipped the winner. I was really pleased for Hank. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a solid week from Hank. So, so discuss the winner first, and then say what you want to say about this kind of. You know, this just discuss poor, the winner first. Yeah. Okay, so Zhang and Lee six. Yeah, who's that? I was watching her on the range in Adelaide this year at her first LPJ event. Clearly, a brilliant technician, beautiful player. And did I you realize, know who she was when you were watching? Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, I think I did. I knew she was good. I, yeah, but. I didn't know that her father had been paralysed in a truck accident when Absolutely. he was a truck driver at, when she was four years old. And, you know, she, it was a difficult family circumstances. And Yeah, the family was incredibly poor and she's taken it upon herself through her professional career now to be the provider. Right, story. That's, that's what she's had in, on, in her mind since she realised she was a good golfer. Um, I think she actually left the Korean tour because she felt a lot of pressure and it was a bit – getting a little bit snaky for her from what mm. I read during the week. But she's maintained that thing to, you know, be the provider for the family since what a horrendous thing to have happened to a four-year-old girl. Mm. Yeah, the coolest thing in the speech was the the interpreter. Yeah. When the – she started – Crying. She started crying. The interpreter started crying. <laughs> like translating. <laughs> it was, yeah, 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 it was – Yeah. You know, it's a great, beautiful sense of yeah. duty. I mean, it's crazy. We, it's such ah. an – it's such a – like a far reach from what – uh, you know, a lot of Australian kids, for example, would ever take on board. You know that that I must. This is my. This is what yeah. I have to do. Uh, remarkable, remarkable yeah, story. She, she's a technically. In fact, I was on the range with Stacey Peters, and I kind of pointed off in two opposite directions. I said, look at that, and look at that swing over there. And right now, one of them is number one on the main list, and the other one's number two on the main list. Jin Young Cohen. I mean, you talk about and the Koreans are. She's got a it's, a, it's a phenomenon in terms of what they've done to women's golf, which which goes into what Hank Haney said, mm. which is a you know the, the Americans tend to who, who are not interested in the LPGA too are not interested because the Americans don't win every mm. week. Mm. But the best thing that's happened to women's golf, one is the LPGA tour has become a world tour, and two that the Asians and the Koreans specifically, not 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 not, not exclusively, but They've been the leaders have transformed women's golf mm. and taken it to a level that it never would have reached if it remained an American Western dominated sport. I mean, they're, I mean, I, my guess is that all of the most of the best kids in Korea, women, girls who play sport, golf's their number one pick. Mm. Whereas in Australia, it's their number oh, God. 50th. If you can get whatever. Them to play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they're getting all of the best athletes. They work incredibly hard. They've got great role models. They're great technicians, and they clearly the best ones are going to be brilliant players. And 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 they'll dominate the game for for perhaps not decades, but certainly you know, for the foreseeable future, they're going to continue to dominate the game. Oh, you only have to take a look at things like the Queen Circuit Cup. You know, they they ran um, the trifecta in the individual thing. It's it's really hard to see, and that's that's their second strength team coming out here. There. Next wave of talent, sort of that's going to dominate the pro ranks, has already progressed from mm. that level of tournament. It's just a, it's a factory 
of, of the next wave coming Which through. Which was you know, as big a deal as the women's masters was at Augusta. I think there was one Korean in the field there. Yeah. And you can't tell me that of the 80 players that played there or whatever, that there aren't some Koreans who deserved it or who were good enough to play in that field who clearly either are not interested or just don't – it doesn't seem like their program is based around – Amateur rankings. They don't care about amateur rankings. It's, it's how you play as a pro. Yeah. And they've got this system that produces, you know, reams of players who are not only good players, but technically beautiful to watch play. They have not one care in the world for the world amateur golf rankings. Yeah. And that's how you get into that mm. event, unless you're in a college system over there and you're, you're a superstar. Look, Andy, I don't really necessarily want to talk about Hank Haney too much, but I mean, it is the elephant in the room. For those who don't know, he, he was asked on a PGA Tour radio show of all places um, for his thoughts on the um, US on the US Women's mm-hmm. Open, and for a start, and this is the, I'll come back to this in a second. He said he didn't know it was on, and he couldn't name six players on the tour. And he just said, "A Korean will win, and she'll be called Lee." I mean, it's a lot of people will listen to me here, and others presumably will say, "Oh, you know, you're a PC gone mad, and all mm-hmm. that sort of rubbish." Oh, well, of course, they will. Yeah. Um, it's sexist. It's racist. It's xenophobic. It's, it's everything tag you want to put on it Ugh. and I, I i i understand that he's probably i'll cut him some slack and say he was trying to be vaguely humorous even though i don't find any humor in it whatsoever i've got as much of a problem well, let's, we'll come back to that in a second but i've got as much of a problem him doing it um banking a check from that radio show um and the golf industry more generally when he cannot name six players on the LPJ tour and can't name easily the most important event in the world that week. It's not like it's a Mickey Mouse event. It's the U S women's open for God's sake. Mm. You know, it, this is the prime event I in the, on the women's calendar. It's a disgrace that he says, I don't know the players and I don't know that tournaments on. I, and I, you know, I, if in a good mood, I might be able to let him go for some of the other stuff. Maybe probably not, but I can't let him go on that level. I, just such a destructive thing. And then to see, it prompted comments from people who don't get their feathers ruffled very easily. Mm. Michelle Wee ripped him. Kari Webb just absolutely smashed him on Twitter. Um, down to locally, Steph Bunky, you know, gave him a well wow. going over. And I think almost everyone did, apart from that. Um, anyway, yeah, they did, and, and you know, but then it comes on on Monday morning, Clates, and you see when. Just per chance, a woman called Lee from Korea won, and he sort of gets on his high horse and said, I did predict this, you realize. And people around the world who are rednecks, I can't think of a better way to describe them, Andy, um, pat him on the back and say, yeah, good on you, you're a PC police guy, mad or whatever. <clears throat> what about the poor girls who don't feel comfortable in a golf club? What about the women who think of golf as a pale male and stale sort of environment? You know, it's just embarrassing that someone can, you know, project himself as the, that. That's the image of golf. Oh, voices like that are empowered over in that country at the moment, and yeah. that's, he's a product of the America he lives in in 2019. And I imagine wearing it as a badge of honour. I mean, well, plus, it's just embarrassing. You don't need to care about women's golf or have any interest in it at all, but. In his position, it's his job to know at least make an intelligent comment, at least know that's where it's mean. being played, he, he. who the best players are, you know. And he's a swing. T- I mean, as a coach, you should be able to comment on the techniques of the best players. Yep. And, as you, right, and as you rightly say, that's that's the Korean crew in the women's game. 
I, that's what I said before, Andy. I just think it's disgusting that he banks a check out of that. No, and, I don't disagree with anything that either of you two have said. So, I, yeah, it's, it's appalling. We probably should just let it go. Yeah. Um, I, from a from an Australian perspective, Minji Minji Lee. Yeah. <laughs> so, th- of the seven women who played, firstly, congrats to um, Gabby Ruffles, who mm. fought really well. I thought she parred eight of her first nine holes under some pretty heavy dose of the nerves. Really well. Great signs for the future. Um, the three who made the cut, Catherine Kirk actually got it back to even par at the, with nine to play, finished four over. Hannah Green shot the day's best round, the final round, 67, so that's awesome. <sighs> Minji Lee <laughs> shot the most birdies of anyone in the field comfortably. 18 birdies she fired in her, round, in her four rounds. Finished one under the card with 18 birdies. The winners finished at six under. She's got to look back on that and rue it. And and as we all know, a triple bogey and two double bogeys. Even if she bogeys them, she finishes five under an outright second. If she pars a couple of them, you know, she wins. Um, um, she'll look back and regret yeah. that, I reckon. Now, Australian caddy for the winner. Adam, whose surname I don't know, but I absolutely should. Australian kid from, how oh, I should know. Um, he used to cave for Charlie Holt. So someone can, someone can ring in with homework <laughs> as to Adam's surname, but Australian caddy with the winner. I might even find it if you guys keep and talking. Not, not Adam Dr- Not Adam Drummond. Not no, Adam Drummond. No, no. Adam, I should, no, I should know his name because I know him. Good guy. Um, and used to go for Charlie Hull. And another Australian favourite, the Vegemite girl, Soyoung Yu, who has yes. gone in the last, in nine US Opens, has had a first, a second, two thirds, two fifths, an 11th, a 13th, and a 20 something. It's pretty solid. Which is, is that right? Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah, she she was. Second again this week, so she has an incredible record in the US Open. Yeah, that's fine. That's phenomenal. Um, what did you make of Minji, Andy? I'm, I'm, oh no, but no, no, no. And... Yeah, she will. You know, um, it just you can have a you can have a bad hole, but limit the damage, right? Like, don't let it become two or three shots being dropped on a hole. Contain yeah, the, just contain the damage. Everyone's going to in a US Open, Clates, men and women, there are going to be plenty of bogeys. Um, but you've got to make sure you don't have too many doubles. And Going triple. back to Hank Haney, Hank taught Marco Mira and he said, and Tiger. He said, Tiger was a different beast. He could afford to make mistakes, but he and O'Meara figured out that there were three things you couldn't do to win a golf. If, if you wanted to win a tournament, you couldn't three putt, mm. you couldn't double chip, as in if you missed the green, you had to get your next shot on the green, and you couldn't take penalty shots. And he said, if if you're a O'Meara type player, as in very good player, but not Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholson, yep, yep. you couldn't afford to be making basic mistakes like that. And you can bet Minji had a truck. If she's making that many birdies, she's got she's making a truckload of those sort of mistakes. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Yep. You can't win tournaments if you make simple mistakes. You just can't catch those shots up. Mm, mm. Adam Woodward. Adam Woodward. That's exactly who it is. Well done. Nice sure. work. You're Apologies to Adam good. Woodward, who's a another. Dean Hurden, Adam Woodward. There have been a few Australians who've won majors with Koreans. Brad, I, Brad Hughes is probably standing by waiting for us to get to him, so we should probably whip our way through uh, the rest of the goings-on around the world. We can do that later, Andy. We should get to Get to Hughes. We'll Let's do that. Uh, we'll clear a break here on Inside the Ropes. Uh, Brad Hughes is going to join us on the other side of this. 
The Golf Australia website is now the place to go to look up your handicap and so much more. Whether you're out and about on your phone or in the office trying to avoid work, just go to golf.org.au and punch your golf link number into the box at the top of the homepage. Who knows, maybe that last round was just good enough to put you in single figures. While you're on the site, check out the daily golf results at your club, view our course index for up-to-date ratings, read the latest golf news from home and abroad, listen to Australian golf podcasts and interviews, and watch video tournament highlights or tips to improve your game. It's everything a golf tragic could want. Visit golf.org.au today. The home of Australian golf. Welcome back to the show. Uh, lovely to be able to spend some time with a man who, I must say, and I know you would have played a lot of golf uh, with him and competed against him, Clays, but I thought when he won the Australian Masters at 25 or 26, I'm sure I remember exactly how he was, I thought, here is a player that is going to be an absolute global superstar. He just looked like such a natural player. Um, of course, I'm talking about Brad Hughes, who... Uh, We've kept up till the wee small hours of the uh, morning over in South Carolina, which is his new home, and he's been good enough to join us on the show. Brad, thanks for joining us on Inside the Ropes. You're welcome. I'm, I'm staying awake. I just watched the Carlton Essendon replay, so that's kept me up and got me all fired up. Well, how, that, how did you stay awake through that? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was just a cheap through, shot. Uh, that was a cheap uh, shot for Andy. <laughs> Are you an Essendon or a Carlton supporter, Brad? I'm a Carlton supporter. Nice. Oh, for how much longer, I don't know. <laughs> no, that was good. So, how old were you? Was it were you 25 or 26 when you won that first Australian Masters? I was 26. Yeah, it was, and I always used to be played in February, right around my birthday. So, it was always a good week for me, birthday, and I normally played well there. So, let me ask you: it's a long way, a long, a long time ago, but when you won that. Did you kind of was that a did you think that was going to be you know kind of like a, a launching point for um, you know like a really really serious career where where, where did you have yourself kind of pegged um, from an ambition perspective after you won that? Well, to be honest, I never really I never played golf with big dreams at that time. Um, I played golf because I loved it, and and you know I had some success right around that era, you know straight out of the gate actually I won my my third event and went to Europe pretty quickly and then didn't enjoy that as much um took off to Japan and got there quickly and and you know ended up making president's cup team and playing in all the big events so I I just played golf because I liked it and I enjoyed it and obviously being good at it helped but you know I was never interested in in the money I think that spoils a lot of people I know that's something that happened down the road there. I had a divorce and next minute I was playing for money rather than for the fun of it and enjoyment. So it changes your, your perspective. I, I wouldn't say I set big goals, but I did get to play 10 majors and the President's Cup and I, I just had fun playing and, and I enjoyed I enjoyed the challenge of golf, not necessarily the achievement side of things. I just thought they looked after themselves if you did everything that you could. So when you look back on that era when you're winning Australian Masters, do you look back fondly and think that, you know, I was good enough to make other people quake in their boots playing Brad Hughes? Wow. Uh, I don't know. We're, we're playing the same time as Greg good. Norman. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but he beat, he beat Greg Norman at the height of his game. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, but Greg Norman had boats quaking in their boots. No one else did. Did they, did they hear <laughs> you, do you think? 
Yeah, I, I don't think I made too many people shake, but yeah, you know, I was I was generally pretty good when I got near the lead. I seemed to hang around or go on and win or you know feature. So you know, I wouldn't say that they were worried about me, but I guess in the back of their mind, they knew I wasn't going to go away if I was near the lead. So which was the one where you hit that great three arm? Is that ninety three or not? That was ninety eight, right? On the last hole, where no, you that was in ninety. Yeah, Peter Senior still had two or three holes to go, and I was a few groups ahead of him. And it actually worked out pretty good. I, I, you know, there was Senior and I think Terry Price in the last group, Norman and Craig Parry was second last group. And I was sort of under the radar a bit. I was playing with uh, one of your mates there at at the sh- at SCN, Murray, um, Mark Allen, who oh, yeah. was playing in the third last group. Yeah. And... We, you know, it was good. We knew each other growing up. I used to drive Mark to state team practice, and when he before he had a license and everything like that. So we'd known each other. It was a comfortable pairing, and I got off to a good start. And you know, no one really expected us to do much, especially those guys ahead of us. But I snuck it round in. Well, I was six under coming up the last for the day, and I, I put a three iron into about a foot and a half or two feet, and and. Uh, Peter Senior, who was still one in front at that point, he just birdied 16, I believe, to go uh, one in front or two in front. I mean, I birdied, you know, to be one back. But funny things happen. You know, he three-putted the last hole, and next minute I'm in a playoff. And it's an interesting playoff, too. I didn't do this on purpose, but, you know, I waited around, waited around to see what was going to happen, and he missed, and we were ready to go on the playoff. And I, I went and saw the one of the PGA guys, Mark Williams, I said, mate, I'm busting for a pee. I've got to go to the bathroom here. So we, I got to go into the, I got to go into the toilet and sort of wait around. And, and I think that even, that threw Pete off a little bit that I wasn't on the tee ready to go. You know, they brought me on a few minutes later and he was, got to stew over his missed putt a little bit longer and hit a bad tee shot and got, got cut off and I made a par and I won. Gamesmanship deluxe oh, there. Yeah, that's fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. Well, and Peter Senior hitting a bad tee shot. That didn't happen very often. No, that's true. No. Well, the, the playoff hole was 17, as you'd know, in those days, Clates, and he yeah. sort of half missed playing up the right-hand side and was blocked out and couldn't get on the green and and didn't get up and down. One of the great one-two punches, the old Huntingdale finish there, isn't it? Did you guys like that hole? Did you like the 17 at Huntingdale when it, the way it was, when it was routed for that championship? Uh, I liked it. It felt better then before they opened it up. It right. felt better when it was lined with tea tree down the left, but it plays better now, but it doesn't feel... And I like the old green. I thought the old green was better, flatter, and more in character with the rest of the greens yeah, the golf course than it, it finished up. A lot of the greens got a, got a little bit out of control. The, one of the things about Huntingdale is the greens were reasonably flat, but they were very subtle breaks, and they were pretty quick, so... You know, you had to... They were tough. And sometimes breaking greens are a little bit easier to putt on just because you, you know it's going to go such and such a way and you can feed it out there. But, you know, I, I'm with Clates there. I think the, the the claustrophobic factor of that tee shot and the trees sort of hanging out a bit more made it a bit more, a bit more daunting than it probably is today, even though there's, you know, bunkers and, and things down the side there. I mean, back then it was a... One iron, three iron hole, really. I remember playing with Bernard Langer there one. He three putted the 16th. He was so mad. I'm, 
he smashed his putter into the base of his bag like made me jump. <laughs> and then he took a driver. He'd played amazing golf all day. He took a driver out down seven and just ripped a hard, low cut miles down there. It was like just a perfect Around the shot. corner. Yeah, it was a perfect shot. Yeah. But it was a one-iron, three-iron hole, really. Brad, what what do you still? I mean, obviously you remember these things very clearly. What do you have? You got the gold jacket somewhere? Is it something you 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 know contemplate now and again in a quiet moment? I do have them. Yeah, they're up on my wall here. I've got to work out how to get them off. They're way up above the, right. the top of the stairwell. I've got to get a big ladder out to try to dig them down before the, the move in a couple of weeks. But just talking about putting and clates, um, I remember playing with clates. This is probably funny story I'm, I'm sure you'll remember this no one's really heard about it we were playing together at the vines one year and it was probably the year i don't know if the year clates won or yeah it was yeah we played the first two days yep yeah, yeah but and i think on saturday might so this might have been another year we me and clates were playing together on saturday and um we weren't you know we weren't in the lead but we were we were somewhere near the top 10 or 15 or so and i was having a pretty awful day on the on the greens and we've putted out and I, we might've been playing with Vanderveld or someone like that. And he still had to putt me and Clates were done with the hole and and Clates knew I had a tough day on the greens. He goes, give me a look at that putter. So he's like, you know, Clates loves fondling clubs and he touches them and strokes it around. And, <laughs> and uh, so we watch, we watch Vanderveld putt out and off we walk. And I said, Hey, Clates, where's my putter? And he goes, that part is shit. I gave it to a kid in the crowd. <laughs> so he gave my putter away. But the poor little kid, the poor little kid, I had to go chase him down because it was the only putter I had and I still had one more round to go. You can't be doing that, Michael. No, no you can't be doing that. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that, bro. <laughs> he's, he's, Brad, he's got this, va- this vacant look on his face like, oh, I didn't do that. I'm, There's no I'm, way I did that. I'm sure it must be true. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you said I did it, here's your last time. It sounds like a plates thing. It does. Yeah. Hey, did you ever play in, in all your tournament life? Did you? We were just remembering the, um, before we spoke to you, before we got you on the um, Australian Players Championship um, the tournament. I'm not sure how many years it actually ran for, but you won it by about 12 in 1990. Six up at Rabina Woods. Did you ever play better than than you did across those four days in a tournament? Um, I think I did. I probably played better in the '98 Masters when I won that. Mm. But the the interesting thing about the one at um, at Rabina Woods, where I, I did win, you know, quite easily, is I shot four over par my first nine holes, <laughs> and I had a. You know, and Rabina's, it was a narrow course and it was an interesting track because a lot of guys were hitting, you know, short irons off the tee because there was all bottlenecks and especially around the front nine. And I said, well, I'm just going to change my plan here. I think I'm driving it well. So I started hitting driver on most holes instead of irons. And I, um, I drove it well and I drove it long. And because of that fact, I was hitting sand irons and such in the holes and other guys were laying up with five and four irons off the tee and coming in with seven eight irons so i had a big advantage how well i drove the ball that week and i i just got hot with the putter i think i shot five under the second nine for one under and then i shot one under and then six under and you know four three or four under the last day so you know it was an interesting 
tournament to watch. You know, I've got it on tape still. I don't sit there and watch them and reminisce, but I have seen it, and it's um, it's really interesting because I I think I didn't think the course was that difficult, but I think Peter Lonard came second. He mm. was two under, and I was fourteen under. It, yeah. Every course is tough or easy, depending on how you how you play. And that week, I just played really well, took it all by the horns, and decided. I'm hitting it well, this is what I'm going to do, and snuck a few putts in and really made not many mistakes. So, you, Brad, you're talking about you know a couple of tournaments that for some of our younger listeners they will never even heard no. of, unfortunately. Um, I know you're a keen student of the game. Have you got thoughts on the current state of the Australian Tour and what could be done to you know give it a bit of love? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, obviously, we don't have a lot of, you know, America you can... They're begging for tournaments. There's so many big cities around the country here. They and they want you know to showcase their their area and everything. But you can't really have sustain more than two tournaments, big tournaments in you know each major city in Australia. And generally, it only becomes one. So you know we had an influx. We had the Palmetto's Cup and we had the Sanctuary Cove up in the Gold Coast, and that was mainly Japanese money at the time that came in and. We've had a little bit of the European stuff come in. It's really hard to sustain our own tournament for some reason. You know, either the the people just don't see golf as a value for their sponsorship, or or what. I'm not I'm not too sure because you know we've got some good players. We've got we've always had some good players, but we just haven't been able to muster up the the attraction that some of these other things get. You know, and the Grand Slams massive, the tennis, and obviously the Grand Prix, but you know, they're more international things, and that's what we had at one point. You know, the Palm Meadows Cup was worth a lot of money in those days, and unfortunately, we'll probably never see that again. I mean, the Australian Open hasn't really changed in prize money, and we've tried to keep that local, even though we've got Emirates, I think, as a sponsor. Um, the WA Open, that was the first pro tournament I won in 1988. I won $18,000 for winning, and I think they win less than that now for winning it. So I, I, there's no... There's no answer. I, I really don't know. I mean, the PGA Tour has grown big. You know, we've got, they've got a lot of staff and a lot of stuff there, but where's the prize money going? I, I don't know. I'm not there enough to answer that question. Though. So so to you two, the, 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 you know, cut your teeth learning the game and, and playing on a, on a much more vibrant local tour in Australia than exists now, does it matter anymore? And I ask that, that question because we get so much golf we see so much more golf on our on our tallies now that I think a lot of us would think, well, if we have a, a local tour that kind of, you know, withers a bit on the vine and isn't as rich in options that the ones that you guys grew up playing, a lot of us might at once upon a time might have thought, well, that's going to be a signal to the death of the game in Australia. But, but I wonder whether that would be the case, given that we see so much golf now um, – you know, on on television. Yeah. Um, the you only, have you got a view yeah, on that? Well, the only – let me go first, Hughes. The only time we saw professional golfers swing was if you went and watched them. It was the first British Open in Australia was 974 CBS Golf Cl- – Kerry Packer put the CBS Golf Classic on Channel 9 on Wednesday night at 9.30 mm. and it rated its head off. So there was no golf on TV no. apart from the local tournaments at the end of the year. So the only time you saw a pro actually play golf was to go and go to a tournament and watch them. Now you can watch them play every hole all year. 
So I guess there's less of a call for for that, you know, from that point of view. But I just think it's at least once a year in every city to go and watch good players play good golf courses and see how they go about it. I think that's. I think if you give up on pro golf and there's no circuit at all and there are no more tournaments anymore, then people who play golf miss the thrill of watching really good players play really good golf courses. Yeah, not for a minute, Hughie, am I suggesting we give up on it, but, um, you know, this kind of yearning for what we once had and can we get it back again? I'd love there to be, you know, the sort of thing that you're talking about, Clates, a really vibrant, you know, state by state, you know, we could talk about this on another. We could dedicate a whole podcast and maybe our theories as to what, um, you know, our best vision for um, of a vibrant kind of tour schedule in Australia looks like. But I, but I wonder, you know, you're over in America now, Brad. I wonder whether you've got a view as to whether um, the game in Australia will always be sustained now, even if we don't have, um, you know, the, the kind of depth of tournaments to compete for that, that you did. To a degree, yes, just because we've still got great players. And, and for the most part, some of them come back come back home. So we're always going to have our big tournaments. But I, I say that now that the Masters has gone, which I would never thought knew any more with that one, unfortunately. But, it, you know, it's... And I'm, I'm with Clates. I remember growing up watching on TV. I saw, like, the back nine of the majors, maybe in the morning, if you got up at four o'clock. So a little bit of the British Open if you could stay awake at night. And I'd watch Pro Celebrity Golf yeah. at night. I'm sure you guys yeah. remember that. Mm-hmm. Loved it. And, and I think we used to get the world match play for some reason. Yeah, we did. Well. Yeah. That, that was the only time we saw golf on television. So I learnt, you know, I learnt watching, you know, growing up watching, like Clates said, I went out to the golf. I actually went and watched Clates play at the Portsea Pro-Am one year. Um, I saw him obviously play the Vic Open. Um, the first, this is a great story, and you know my birthday is the same as Greg Norman. But when I was, uh, you know, just sort of getting into golf, I think I was 12 years old, 1979 Vic Open at Kingston Heath, and my dad let me have the day off school to go watch the practice days, and I think it was a Monday, and I turn up and. First person I saw was this big blonde guy, Greg Norman. I saw his name on his bag, and I thought, heck, I'm, I'd never seen him. I said, I, I know that name. I've, you know, I'm sure he won in Europe or what have you. And, you know, 1979, he'd been around for a few years by then. So I, um, I walked up on the first tee. He was hitting off. Clates, I remember his caddy he had with him then, Scotty Gilmore. Scotty Gilmore, yeah. They were on the first tee. They were on the first tee, and I just walked up, and I walked around the whole 18 holes with him. And I was the only person that was there. I walked around the whole 18 holes. Greg Norman. Watching him, talking to him, asking him questions. And basically just that was my, that was my first real golf lesson just from walking around and, and admiring and watching and, you know, not, not overbearing, but asking questions. And he was really good. And, you know, eventually I ended up after watching him. So I'm, what I don't care. I'm not sure what he does yet with his golf swing, but I want to make my ball do that. So I went and practiced, and until I could hit the ball somewhat similar, you know, that 200 yard, 10 foot in the air thing, and then it would fizz up into the sky and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, Drop down and hit that, the ground, and you'd go Clates nowhere. Touched, that's what Clates touched on. You know, we used to learn by seeing them up close. Whereas, you know, you've got your Konica Minolta swing biz hub thing and. Now they've got so many technological things, people don't have to go and 
see it up close, which is difficult. And there's an overload of golf on TV. Like I can't even watch it. There's so much, so much golf on. I, I watch the majors and I'll watch some of the tournaments. If any of my guys that I work with are, you know, up there, then I might be able to see them and see how they're playing on TV. But you, you, as you say there, you, you're still heavily involved, whether it's on the social media side of things, but obviously more importantly to you than the coaching aspect of things. What took your fancy in that realm, and is that what drives you on in the States at the moment? Yeah, that's basically all I, all I do. I don't play much golf anymore. Um, too busy teaching, to be honest. I, you know, My schedule's pretty full. I teach a few of the pros. I travel around and I mean, I'm go to different places with some amateurs that bring me into their clubs, or I do, you know, go somewhere. I might be going up to Boston for three days in late July to do some stuff at the country club and some other places with members. And it's it's got attractive, you know, just because I've worked hard on the getting the message out there. I think, you know, one of the toughest things about becoming a teacher was there's there's some type of theory or it's not really a theory, a thought or a belief that if you could play golf, you could play and you didn't know what you were doing. Now, obviously, I'm trying to change that because I think I know what I'm doing or I, you know, I'm trying to get the thing across to to people that you know good players can actually teach. But the reason being is in you know, players, if you're a good golfer, you didn't have to do lessons. So you, you talked about, well, I do this and I do that, and it was all personal feel or perspective or you know insights not necessarily truth so you know they say feel is real and that's how a lot of people instructed by you know what they felt but i i spent a lot of time trying to work out what i believed were the main things and not just how i would do them but how anyone could learn how to do them and had some good success so that's been my main goal i probably worked harder at teaching than i ever did at playing golf, which says a lot because I know how much I did practice, but it's been a lot of fun. Golf instruction's missing a lot. There's, there is a lot of well, so-called garbage out there that is really not not true and quick tips and things. So I've sort of made it a mission to try and get the message out as good as I can do to allow people to play better than they ever thought they could. And it's hard, you know, it's very easy for me to teach the pros because I'm basically teaching them something that they've probably done at some point, but they've been forgotten or forgot it or been coached out of it or something like that. But when you get your amateur guy that's, you know, 20 handicapped and he really doesn't have much idea what's what to do. And he'll hit a good shot now and then. He'll go, look, why can't I do that all the time? I go, because that one was actually pot luck. Like, it should be junk all the time. So trying to just make people get better and, and understand it more. And it's been fun doing that. And I've had a lot of success and and the people that follow my stuff love it. So it gives me a, a good kick. Brad, you, correct me if I'm wrong here, please, because this might be way off beam. I reckon if you were just over 50, maybe 10 years or so ago, you were playing a couple of tournaments where there was limited technology maybe or... Not not as far back as Hickory Sticks, but there was events you entered and played and won that um, fe- featured little technology. Is that right? Well, with persimmon drivers or something. Yeah. Is that, am I barking up I, the right tree? I was using. <laughs> I used persimmon driver 
Now, I think the last time I used it was a 96 British Open. So it's probably one of the last to keep using wood. I mean, I used the persimmon in the President's Cup in 94. And, you know, based on your technology question there, like I was using persimmon, I played a match against Mickelson and Tom Lehman in that. And I was hitting my wooden club further than Mickelson could hit his big Yonex. Wow. And now I wouldn't get within 50 yards of him. So I'll let Clates chime in there because he knows the answer as to why, but <laughs> it's amazing that technology has done so much to make such a, a big difference. And I'll chime in with another stat in a minute, but I want to hear Clates talk about, you know, why that could happen. Why could someone hit it just as far with persimmon, you know, 20 years ago and now not even sniff it? Well, he hit it out of the middle for a start, and then it was pre the era where kids have grown up playing with frying pans and graphite chast and learning all they care about is their clubhead speed and their ball speed. And they've figured out how to get to 120 and 180, which is the mm. clubhead ball speed ratio they need to compete. So when we were kids, no one had a clue what clubhead speed was. No one had any idea what how fast they swung the club. But now distance has become such a critical factor in being able to compete that they're all just swing as hard and as fast as they can. So it's kind of, I mean, my view is that it's kind of ruined the intent of the golf courses. They don't play the way they should, so you finish up with Beth Page, narrow fairways, high rough, or you finish mm. up with 20 under par winning scores, or, you know, it's just, it's a complete distortion of the way golf courses were meant to play in terms of testing the full range of iron shots. So how are you teaching players, Brad? What When you're teaching a good player, what are you telling them to do? Are you, are you teaching them um, course management and craft or are you teaching them, you know, exactly the sort of stuff that Clates is talking about? Uh, a little bit of everything. I've, I mean, with my pros that I teach, you know, they play good enough. They hit it far enough. They, they're, they're after more information like, so they can self-monitor themselves. I think a couple of them sort of got lost um, in translation, I guess, of just little few different instructors and getting told all different things and sort of lost their way a bit. And and uh, that, that was with Brendan Todd. Like, he's been a, a great story. He won the Byron Nelson four years ago and then missed, like, 40 out of 44 cuts in Amazing. a row. That's right. And we started working last year and he... Um, you know, he's made four out of the six cuts he's played in this year on past winner category. He had 18th at the Wells Fargo and a couple other top 25s. He just qualified for the U.S. Open next week, and and he just needed he needed to be able to feel and understand the swing rather than, as he put it, paint lines on a screen. That's sort of what he got taught in the last few years, and he couldn't do it. He, you know, he's trying to play position golf rather than dynamics. So. Hard on that. I mean, he knows how to get it around the golf course. I don't need to tell him that. My my course management or practice stuff is more more with the amateur guy. Um, I've been working with Russell Knox since last November. He's he's played quite well. He hasn't had a major finish yet, but he's I think he's made like fifteen or seventeen cuts that he's played and had a few couple of top ten. So he's been very steady. Just hadn't had the breakout tournament yet but you know we've been working with him he, he just hadn't had a coach for a number of years and he felt it was time and he 
wanted to understand why some shots happened and and that was it. You know, everyone, I try and teach on a different basis for each person. Like I'm not trying to pigeonhole everyone into the same same thing, even though a lot of my videos talk about this and that and, you know, similar stuff. It, I, I really work on the, the person themselves because ultimately my goal as a coach is that I don't want to coach people all the time. I want them to be able to coach themselves after mm. a while. It's a really crappy business model, but it's, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to stand there with people. <laughs> Hit balls all day, and they they need to learn to do it for themselves, like Plates and I did. Yeah, the Jack Grout, the Jack Grout, Jack Nicholas model was pretty good. Jack could go and see Jack Grout in January and check on the setup and the ball position and the just the overall how how the swing looked, and send him away and see you next year. Mm. You know, and if you get into trouble, give me a call, but you'll be fine. And that was how that was how it went, really. Brad, Brad when when did you know that? your days as a kind of touring pro and a, you know, a, a, a pro golfer. I mean, you're still a pro golfer, of course, but the, you, you, when did you lose the kind of want to compete and, and play for a living? Was there a moment when that sort of just hit you? Probably, um, well, you know, I, I got my card in the end of 96 on the US tour. You know, I'd played in Japan for a few years and done pretty well up there. But when I played in Japan, I was still trying to get, you know, play in America and I played a bit in Europe too. So I, I didn't really give Japan a, a full go. So I, I eventually didn't finish in the top 60 there. I just missed out one year because I was playing over here on invites and the Johnny Walker world thing at the end of the year that I got in from winning the Masters and and stuff. Ultimately, America, you know, was my goal. And I first year I moved over here, I just bummed around and played mini tours and Eventually got my card, so I had you know six or seven years pretty much in a row of playing, and in the end of two thousand one, I missed my card by ninety four dollars. <laughs> it was it was a tough year because I I bogeyed the last of the tournament, come tied for third instead of third outright, and that was like it cost me eighty thousand. And then I missed seven cuts by one shot, which was like there's another seventy. So really, I, I missed my card when I could have come nearly top 50 on the money list if I had a, done those things and you know, just made a few of those cuts and had a good weekend. So I think that knocked a bit of, a bit of life out of me because after that, you know, the, the web.com or whatever it was then, buy.com or Nike, I don't know what it was in those days. It, it's, it's a very big step backwards for someone that played the main tour and it's, it's specifically not a tour for an older I like myself with kids and a family and a big house. It's because you're just not going to make money doing it. So the it's more for a young kid coming out, I, I believe. And a, you know, because they they sort of hold the money back. They don't want you to make money on that tour. They say we want you to be hungry. And well, you know, I was getting hungry because I wasn't making any money doing it. And I sort of lost my drive to to play because I was playing pretty good and coming home, you know, winning sixteen hundred dollars. That you know it was that paid the gardener at my house. That was about it. So it, that sort of knocked the the desire out a little bit and I just couldn't quite get back on. I got on for one year, but at, at that time things just weren't good in my life. I didn't get in every tournament and I struggled and tried to force it and didn't get my card back. And so a couple more years on the, the nationwide, I think it might have been then, um, you know, I said that's, 
that's enough. I'm not going to chase chase this around anymore. I think I I can talk about the golf swing a little bit, and I think I'm understanding things better. And I think I'm teach instead. And I just tried to and I just decided to take a different path. Woody Austin, right? Woody Austin, yeah. What, what, Woody Austin $94. was, was one twenty-five. I went through every tournament trying to find that $94, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, so Woody Austin was it? He was one twenty. He, he was, was $94 ahead, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, US Open's just around the corner. 97, um, was I think that was your best finish in a major, I think, at Congressional that year, and there was a kid called Tiger... Woods, who was just making his way um, into the global consciousness, can you how, how clear in your mind are the memories of of that tournament um, that week and um, the whole buzz around Tiger? Yeah, it was pretty big because he'd won the Masters, obviously, and that was the next major. Then, um, Congressional was a good track. The weather was awesome. Um, it was a really interesting tournament for me, you know. I I was playing just all right. I wasn't expecting a lot. But I, I really enjoyed US Opens for some reason. I think, you know, we talk about narrow fairways and long rough and that, but I, I kind of liked it then because there was an advantage for hitting it straight, you know, unlike Beth Page where you, as long as you hit it far, it didn't sort of matter. So you had to be precise off the tee, and that sort of suited my game. I could hit a lot of fairways and greens. Having said that, my first, round of that tournament I I was seven over through seven holes <laughs> I missed a couple of fairways and bogeyed and I hit a, two or three greens and I three-putted them and I whiffed a chip shot went right under it in the rough and uh, seven over after seven and um, somehow I ended up five over for the tournament I shot two under the last 65 holes which you know, who knows if I had a, yeah. played the first seven holes, I, I might have been right there with Ernie Els at the end. But it was a great event because uh, I came 16th, which got me in the Masters the following year. So that was that was pretty awesome because I got to play Augusta. But the the crazy thing about that was I came 16th and it got me in the Masters, but I didn't get back in the U.S. Open because you had to be top 15th. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got in. But not the US Open. So I <laughs> so, do remember playing with Nick Price the last day. Nick Price was awesome, and you know, I'd played with him before in the President's Cup and that. But he, uh, the, the 18th hole then was a par three. They sort of play it as the 10th now, back the other way. It's funny finishing a major on a par three, but um, I sort of, I, I was a bit nervous, excited, and I pumped up. So I hit a seven iron and sort of pulled it a bit, but it got on the green. And Pricey went with a six iron, and as soon as he hit it, he started swearing at himself, saying, you obviously don't like money or such and such. And he, <laughs> he pulled it in the water and made double. So that was actually the... And I parted. That was, so I snuck one shot ahead of him. That's what got me in the Masters. So I love Nick Price for that. He's a nice <laughs> bloke, but he also got me It's hard to believe that Mike Harwood finished second in the British Open in 1991 and didn't get in Augusta. And you could finish 16th at the US Open and get in Augusta. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah, they didn't have the British Open qualifying yeah. then, did they? The why, why? But, but even you, the world rank. How can, how can you finish second in the British Open and not get a start at Augusta? That's like losing the final of the French Open and not being into Wimbledon. That's mm. how silly that is. Anyway, 
least they've fixed yeah, that yeah, up. Right. Just last one from me. How would you describe your relationship with the game now, Husey? You've been through the just about the full gamut. Um, right now, how how would you sum that up? I love it. Now I work hard at it. I'm uh, I enjoy. I enjoy playing when I go play now. You know, I just play with the members or go play with a few buddies here and there or go play you know, with some of the pros when I go practice with them or, or what have you. I enjoy playing. I don't practice, and that's enjoyable too because you know, spend a lot of time over the years hitting balls and everything. So I have no interest in ever really playing at a high level again. I'm too involved in, in the teaching, and that's great. I've got a few pros I work with. I've got a few more, hopefully, in the works that are going to come up. So that's going to get busier, and I just enjoy it. Like, I sometimes you'd wake up and you go, oh, shit, I've got to go play today. Like, But now I wake up and I go, all right, here we go, new guy. Well, this guy, we did this last time. We're going to get him better. Wonder what Knox is doing. Wonder what Chalmers is doing. Like, all these different things that are... And I get calls and emails and all this stuff. So I'm always on the ball, always always working at it. And it's it's interesting to me because I did the other stuff for so long. So it is a different side of things. But, you know, I, I've caddied. I caddied for Allenby a couple of times and survived. Like, I didn't get the sack. <laughs> wow. <after> doing that. <laughs> uh, Brad, we could talk and, to you. And that, that, that was fun. I wanted to caddy for him to see what was going on in his head when we were out on the course, but it was great. We got along awesome and doing that. So, you know, I've caddied. I guess you could call me psychologist as well. But So it, it's interesting. And one of the, the biggest things for me, I find, especially when I go play nine-hole lessons with people or something like that, I'll hit a shot and, you know, and I can still play pretty good. You don't forget that. But um, and I'll hit a shot and I go, wow, what did you do there? How did you do that? And I'll go... What did I do there? Like I gotta, I gotta sit back and think. What did I do? Because over the years you practice it and work on it so much, it just becomes instinctive and tuition. Whereas now I've got to try and relay my, all right, what did I do on a downhill line? The ball was that above my feet, and this and that, and it's uphill. So I got to try and learn to relate that to the person. Just the slight adjustments I made with my setup or something like that to give them a. A better chance. So that's interesting for me because, you know, a lot of the stuff is second nature just from practicing it. It's like Seve using a three-iron to flop shot. And, you know, how do you explain that to someone? You, you could just do it. So there are things like that. You know, pros are good at doing stuff and pros, like I said earlier, don't necessarily need to relate how they do it because they're not teaching people. They just know it. They just do it. So... It's good to be able to relate it all too. That's been the fun thing. Got my brain thinking and ticking and and working on things, you know, over and over, and it keeps me on the ball with it all. And the, uh, I think Brad's one of the most interactive pros in the world of golf. And for anyone who we could list out a whole series of pointers here, we don't normally do this, but I reckon anyone who wants to, um, you know, get a pointer on their game or just engage with someone who genuinely knows what's happening mm. in, in all aspects of golf. Uh, on Twitter, it's at B Hughes Golf. At B Hughes Golf. So if you want to follow along, and there's pointers there to the other forums and uh, websites where you can, you know, get more of Brad's stuff. But I, I really appreciate you joining us, Brad, because mm. uh, it's it's very instructive to listen to you. You're welcome. Glad I got the chance. 
Thanks for joining us. Stop watching those Carlton replays. Uh, wait for him to sort of turn the corner and uh, it will be less of a horror show. It won't come with an R rating uh, in a couple of years' time, hopefully. Uh, mate, great to hear your voice on the show. Hopefully people have enjoyed listening to you as much as we have. It's been great to have a chat with you. Keep going for hours and hours, but as always the case, time's on the fly. Thanks for joining us, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jersey. You're welcome. Brad Hughes, Brad Hughes joining us on Inside the Ropes. Don't go anywhere more on the other side of this. Hi, I'm Minji Lee, and I'm proud to be an ambassador for MyGolf, Australian Golf's national junior program. One of my favourite things about coming back to Australia is seeing all the kids getting into golf. MyGolf is every Aussie kid's first step on their golfing pathway. It's all about fun and friendship, learning golf and life skills in a safe and healthy environment. Sir. If your child is between 5 and 12 years old, be sure to find a program near you at mygolf.org.au. Well, welcome back to Inside the Ropes, and another special guest joins us now, uh, Darren Weatherall, the, a certified PGA professional from Queensland who's going to be heavily involved in the Outback Queensland Masters starting in just a couple of weeks' time and running for the best part of five or six weeks up through Outback Queensland, culminating in Mount Isa on the 28th of July. Darren, you're going to play, or welcome to Inside the Ropes, and you're going to play a pretty uh, key role throughout the duration of the event. G'day, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is a pleasure to come on. I heard you had Adam Scott last week, so um, we only I feel go... like I'm in good company on your, on your show. Yeah, we only go for uh, the big guns, mate, so, you know, that's, that's yeah, exactly Yeah, I'm glad, right. glad you saved, saved the star for this week, so that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you can promise yeah, us so you can finish uh, second in the Canadian Open this week, we'll get you on. <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. I'm, I'm running out of time now. I feel. Uh, yeah, so we've got um, these six events coming up in Outback Queensland, and uh, I'm going to be running the junior clinic and also involved in some of the operational aspects as well. Uh, there, so very excited about it. Uh, these are wonderful people out here and very unique uh, clubs that we have, and uh, some really exciting entertainment uh, and uh, some really great prizes on offer as well too. And. Darren, and this is where you're going to come into your own out there, no doubt. It's not only it's not for you know legendary golfers. This is for choppers, just like me, and and all levels of golfer can come out and have a crack at this. You don't have to be a PGA pro, do you? No, absolutely not. It's uh, it really is designed for anyone to come and just just try some golf out. Uh, if you are an avid golfer, there's going to be specific golf prizes, uh, and then we're going to have a revised format uh, for people that have never played golf as well too. So. Uh, if you come out, feel free to bring your partner and uh, and join in because there's going to be live entertainment at the end of day one. So uh, it's going to be just a fun sort of festival feel weekend at each location. So I should recap that for our listeners. It's a nine-hole event on the start of two days in each town that we go through, six towns, uh, nine holes, a bit of entertainment and food uh, on the first night, another nine holes the next day, and then we sort of pack up the caravan and move up the road. And culminating, if you've played at least... Uh, if Mount Isa is at least your third event, you can shoot for a million-dollar hole in one on the final weekend, which is July 26 to 28 up at Mount Isa. Uh, Darren, I'm interested to know you're obviously a proud Queenslander. What Have you spent Absolutely. much time at any of these courses uh, that we're going to visit? I've spent a little bit of time at Mount Isa, but I haven't uh, been as yet to the others, so I'm looking forward to getting out there and uh, and seeing the different layouts. We've got some sand greens and grass greens, uh, some really unique little little layouts out there as well too. So I'm looking forward to it. So what, is there any tips you can provide to, you know, if, if you're listening to this in Adelaide or, you know, Hobart or somewhere where, you know, you're thinking, geez, that sounds really good. What are the, uh, what are the advantages of getting a look at these courses that you otherwise wouldn't see? 
it's a totally different perspective. These are sort of very sort of open spaces. Like I said, um, fair bit of sort of sand greens, uh, red dirt, um, very unique characters and very unique towns in each of these locations. They've all got airports as well too, so it's great just to be able to fly straight in. You can play one of them or you can play, you know, a series of them. Um, so, yeah, it is just, just golf on a totally different level. If you have a look at some of these golf courses uh, online, you'll see that there's uh, there's something very special and very different about them. And the uh, the entertainment we've got lined up is going to be um, some exciting announcements happening in the next week or two, which I can't give too much away at this stage. Hey, if you're going to come on Inside the Ropes, you've got to give us the scoops, mate. <laughs> I'll uh, feel free to have me back in a couple of weeks and then maybe I can, <laughs> maybe I can uh, give you a little bit more. No, that's fair enough. Darren, we know you're a very busy man and we you can hear the excitement in your voice about the Outback Queensland Masters and just to encourage people to get to www.outbackqldmasters.com. Follow through. There's the golden ticket prize among all the other information there about the million-dollar hole-in-one and Mount Isa and everything else in between. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll let you go now and we'll keep on with the show and good, best of luck with everything out there in Outback Queensland. Pleasure. Thanks, Mark. And uh, if you need any tips, feel free to let me know. Sounds like you need some help. That's uh, so true. <laughs> You've got no idea how true that is. Good on you, on you Darren. <laughs> uh, thanks, Mark. Andy, I know you've been a big fan of the Outback Queensland Oh No, no I'm losing now. interest in it, to be honest, because <laughs> I expected that you would have been able to pull some strings by now and have us up there doing some shows uh, well, we've got until the as I just said to Darren, nah, we've, got, yeah. we've got until the end of July to get up there. So I'm, 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 I'm still hope. hopeful. I'm losing hope. But thanks for your contributions to that interview. I really appreciate <laughs> I it. I just said to Nick out a very important <laughs> phone call. I didn't take. Um, we spoke about the two major tournaments, the US Women's Open and uh, the Memorial early. Um, other results from around the globe that we need to discuss before we um, wrap it up. Some encouraging uh, results. Again, from the Aussies on the web.com tour. Very um, encouraging one, particularly here. Yeah, Rian Gibson. No, well, you know, no, I'm going elsewhere, but you go. Cameron Percy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh. He's had that wrist, and he's not going to play. It was his home track, Yep. Uh, and he's not going to play next week. He's still The wrist is still a bit weak, but um, for him to – he put himself right in the frame there for a little while, and he's had a top – Oh, he had a top twenty finish anyway in his first. I think his first hit back for quite some time. I think, I think he might have had four rounds sub seventy. He's. It's such a pity that he injured himself, and he's to come on this show at some stage soon, Andy. But um, Good on you him. know he, he's in remarkable form. Uh, he's finished eleven under in his mm. first hit out back, tied for seventeenth. Uh, still thirty first, despite missing a fair bit of chunk of golf. He's still thirty first on the on the uh, mm. web dot com standing, so that's handy. Um, you're right about Ryan Gibson, though. So he, he's the headliner from the tournament from an Australian yeah, perspective. It, Brett Druitt qualified for the US Open this morning. Yeah, we, I, we've got to go through that. Oh, I missed that. Did he really? Yeah, as oh, did, that's great as, news. As did Aaron as did, Badley, right? Who else, who else qualified? As did Marcus Fraser. Marcus Fraser oh, qualified really? at Walton Heath. Fraser, legend. Oh, that's great news. Yeah, we'll come back to, after we'll, what's we'll, happened in my footy club. That's really given me, even though it was his dirty, rotten football club that – did it to my coach. That's great news. Oh, um, there you absolutely genuine and spontaneous unbridled joy on my behalf, captured here on Inside the Ropes. There <laughs> well, you just, go. Just, I think he was second, wasn't he, Fraser? Was he second at Walton Heath? I think so, yeah. From, yeah. yeah. How's that out of, out of the blue? That is out of the blue. Yeah. Good um, so just going back there, Rian Gibson finished fourth, Andy, a sign of the web.com tour that it was took a 17 underscore to finish fourth. Um, but he's jumped up to 23rd in the standings again, and that was his um, best finish of the season. Uh, 
three times he's been in the top 10. So starting to find a bit of form too there, Rian Gibson. Brett yep. Drewitt, as Clates mentioned, um, finished two under and tied for 63rd. Jamie Arnold was in the same category and Brett Coletta missed the cut. All those guys, probably Drewitt excluded, are in the mix outside um, Gibson, of course, who's 23rd. They're, they're in the 20 spots after the number 25 slot. And it's crunch time's coming quickly for mm. those guys. Where we're into June, they've got two or three months left now um, to, to you know queue up for the finals and make that assault to the top 25 that'll get in their cards. Absolutely. Um, um, we're, Latino uh, America? Yeah, go on. Yep. Um, it was a fascinating ride for Harrison Endicott. Um, both he and Ryan Ruffles made the uh, the match play f- uh, knockout in Mexico this week, and Harrison Endicott survived um, three results to get into the final eight, where the match was decided either on extra holes or on the last hole, and then he missed a five-footer on the first sudden-death playoff hole to lose uh. to, to Tommy Coker in the quarterfinal. So he's done really well. He's got six and two match play record on that tour, but... Um, we just need him urgently to, to sort of win something. Win something. He's up to seventeenth mm-hmm. on the order of merit. Ryan Ruffles is fifth. Uh, the old boys, uh, Steve Leaney. Steve Leaney continues to do really well. Still earning tomato sandwiches, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tied twenty first. White bread the, tomato sandwiches. Close, they're the yeah. worst, weren't they? Were they the worst ever? Tomato sandwiches. <laughs> I used to like tomato, oh, like I a fresh tom- too much salt and a bit too much oh, pepper on it. Hated it. Magnificent. <laughs> Can't eat too many of them though. Your toes will start dropping oh, off. Can. And the Canadian tour, the Mackenzie tour, and yes. I should say, across Canada's kicked off. And Rubens on is the Australian who's fighting his way there, missed the cut in British Columbia. Clates, how many uh, Albert tries have you had in your or Albert trosses? Oh, I don't know what they had. One fake one. Really. Where where was it? It was on the fifteenth of Hillsville, which was a hole we redesigned. Love Hillsville, and you've done a great it's a great, job course. With a great a job with course. that golf course, and it's a. We it's only about three hundred ninety meters. Well, we it? measured it in a crisscross to get <laughs> to get it to a par five length, <laughs> That's right. but it's really only a long par four. And it's got a tricky green, pretty tricky yeah, green, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I had to creek through the middle of the fairway. Drove That's it, right. You've got to drive it left of the creek, which is a hard drive. Yep. To get the angle down the green, if you go right of the creek, which is an easy drive, you have got to come across the creek rather than playing alongside it with your second shot. So yeah. I, yep. I bumped a four iron and ended up. He was all, I think it was a senior pro or something. So that week I made two holes in one on an albatross in a week. It's unbelievable. You, two mm. holes in one. Mm, I did. I had a hole in one of the 13th of Metro, playing on my own in a practice round. And I went to are the- Are you prepared to talk about that, are you, publicly? Well, then I went to- <laughs> Isn't that one of those things you just take to your grave? Well, you know, yeah, no. if you knock it in the hole, you knock it in the hole. Oh, true, but you know. And then I well, went- I've, had, I've had 17 of them. I wonder how many of those Donald Trump's had. <laughs> Hey, if only somebody had been here playing with me. Yeah. What about Kim Jong? He would have had a few. Then I went to the Santos Pro-Am, made a hole in one at the 13th, then made a hole in one at made an albatross at Hills. It's a there. brilliant week. The reason I ask that question is because Chris Golding, who is part of the Boomer squad, of course, mm. uh, big year coming up for the uh, Australian basketball team, or big couple of months, had a two on the 560-metre par 5 14th at Cathedral uh, recently. That's pretty good going. Oh, the four, that's a hard hole too. So he reckons he's hit his drive 350 metres, yeah, well, hit that, some downslope and bounce yeah, for a mile, yeah. and then hit a five-iron 200 metres into the hole. That's uh, that's impressive. Yeah. That's a bit unfair, isn't it, to be able to do that sort of stuff, Hazy? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm going what, with yes. Knock down threes for just for fun? 
Shouldn't be allowed to do that sort of stuff, I don't reckon. Uh, no, that's about I, it. What are you okay. looking at? You're scrolling got, around I'm, over I'm there. I'm trying what are you to find for? some more of the US Open qualifiers before we knock off here. Have you got any? I nearly had an albatross on the oh, nearly sixth. Count. sixth no, it sat on the back lip. It sat on, on the sixth at Bunanyong, at Royal Bunanyong. <laughs> okay. Didn't quite go in. No, um, I just, reckon I've got on a par five in two once in my life. Really? Yep. And I can't even remember which one it was. <laughs> oh, no, it was, I know where it was. It was, on the, it was at the Cups. Up the hill, well, that one, that the par five along the road. Up the hill, I reckon I've been on. I can reach that one easily. That par five up there. What holes that? Clates on the cups course. The cups and there at the dunes. Don't know the little you know, kids course. I don't know. Yeah, it's about the only par five in Australia I can reach into. I'll try and recap this quickly before we please knock do. Off. As as Clates said, with it's the not US great Open. radio. What waiting for you to find something? on No, but you guys can talk through it. These are the US Open qualifiers today. Aaron, that's Bat- great news about Fraser. Yeah. Aaron Baddeley qualified. Um, not that he's Australian, but Ryan Fox, a friend to many, also qualified in the same field. Good man. Uh, the one that Clates mentioned before, Brett Druitt, um, finished uh, in a three-way tie for, well, fifth, but he was the one who won the advanced out of the playoffs, but one of those who didn't advance, or it was a two-way playoff rather, against Ju Young Lee, but Lucas Herbert's a second alternate from the uh, same from the same uh, venue. Yep. Um, just keeping, you guys can need to keep talking. Zach Blair, Zach Blair made it. He's one of, now why do you like Zach Blair so much? Because he's like interested in course design and he yep. came out and played it. Metropolitan and the Masters because he wanted to come and play the golf course. And Good on him. He he'll, said, yeah. he'll be looking for an invite to Kingston Heath next year, Hazy. So I'm sure you can. He had a pretty, pretty, in mind. He'll come a pretty good finish a couple of weeks ago, didn't he, Zach Blair? Wasn't in he? fact, I'll tell you what he did. Talking about Brad Hughes finishing 126th on the main list, he finished 126th on the main list, I want to say last year, perhaps the year before. So that's that's just the worst place to finish. You'd lose a lot of nights sleep over that, wouldn't you? Yeah, that you putt would. I missed there, and yeah, you know, so this yeah. there. And Marcus Fraser finished third, tied for third at Walton Heath with rounds of sixty six and sixty eight, um, which is obviously super impressive uh, to get through. Um, among people who sort of missed the cut there, Lee Westwood seventy one sixty nine, Eduardo Molinari sixty eight seventy three. It's. Uh, it's hard work getting through these, isn't it? It's it's good golf. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. good playing at Walton Heath. Yeah, that is good. Um, so that I, before we go, last thing, Clates, your thoughts on Pebble Beach? Because for me, this is the second shortest um, course that they're lining up to mm. play on the US Open. Rota behind Marion. I'm not suggesting for a millisecond that Marcus Fraser is going to win the US Open next week. Oh, but geez, that's a big call. Fraser <laughs> to win. No, no I'm not no suggesting chance. he will. But no chance. Zero chance. Yeah. This is a course that he could yeah, theoretically. He could, he could go all right there. Yeah, he could. Yeah. It's, it's a pity that, you know, he, he just, he'll be the first to tell you that when they line up on a on an Aaron Hills track, he can't yeah, no, get but the job done. But It's just, hey, listen, sometimes just qualifying is a, a triumph in itself. Get yeah, there, yeah, play get on there, the, get through it, the yeah. weekend. You know, like yeah, what? A, what? A, that's brilliant. He's every chance to play through the week next week. No problem mm-hmm. at all. I mean, his his game yeah. should suit that yeah. course in comparison to other American courses mm. on the U.S. Open rotor. Mm. Yeah, it's not. It's the shortest. Yeah, behind Marion, and depends on the weather completely and how they've set it up. How narrow the fairways are. I think the rough is. I mean, it was Nicholas won there with two over par in nineteen seventy two, so it was tough that week. Bruce Crampton was second. Australian. Yeah. Mm. Have you played there? Walked around it. 
my sister one day, Crampton was playing. I'm sure I've told you this story before. I'm sure I've told you this story before. Stop if I have. But we were, mum and dad took us to the golf one day and Jane had no idea what she was doing. She's up on dad's shoulders, you know, 2,000 people around the green and Crampton stalking his putt. And uh, he's a big smoker, wasn't he, Bruce Crampton? No. Wasn't he? No, no, no. He had, well, Jane said, I'm sure it was Bruce Crampton. He's walking around, he's sort of grimacing and he's gritting his teeth as he's sort of stalking his putt. And Jane said, it was dead quiet. And Jane said to Dad, why has he got such yellow teeth? (laughs) The whole joint just lost the plot. Why has he got such yellow teeth? I'm sure it was Bruce Crampton. I don't know. I don't know who it was. Maybe he just had yellow teeth. I remember walking around. Maybe eating twisties or something. Brad here's story of walking around with Norman. I remember walking around, only one, walking with Bruce Crampton and Tom Watson at Victoria in the mid-70s. Just listening to, I didn't That's say great. a word, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they were happy for me to walk and listen to what they were saying. And <laughs> that, well, that was that was when watching golf was great fun. No one does, does anyone do that anymore? No, I don't think oh, they ridiculous. do. Ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I was close to David Graham once when he hit it under a bush on the long par five at Huntingdale, 15th? 14th. 14th. <laughs> we were down by the bush and he got up to the bush. He was in contention and he yeah. knows where the ball was. I'm glad there were no microphones under yeah. that bush to yeah. relay that conversation. <laughs> there you are, Nappy. Andy, um, before um, you sign it. us off, yep, go on. I'm off to uh, Pebble Beach next week. So I'll you're, you're Beach. not going, are you? I am going. I've got the nod to go to Pebble Beach, so oh, um, you I'll disgrace. be reporting in and not sitting here opposite you. Oh, that's fantastic. Good luck. Half your, yeah. half your luck. <laughs> They've got a past champions thing there. Um, Jeff Ogilvie's going on Thursday. The, 33 of the 36 living champions are there. They're playing at Cypress Point on Wednesday. Wow. He said, you can't really miss that, can you? I said, no, you can't miss that. I might be. Go and wander along. Yeah, yeah, absolutely you should. Uh, Have a great trip, Hazy. You deserve it. That'd be awesome. Uh, That's it. Thanks, Clates. Thanks, Uh, mate. Great to have you with us inside the ropes. Episode 105 in the can.